So the season of Advent, this is, of course, one of the church's oldest traditions. It's kind of unknown as to when it became, it's, it was first celebrated. Um, the Council of Sargossa in AD 380 is probably the first written mention of Advent. And as, as a matter of fact, that council had met to combat a Gnostic heresy, which is kind of coincidental because today's passage, we're also dealing with a Gnostic uh, heresy that had sprung up. But Advent is this beautiful celebrated tradition and it serves as believers, it serves to keep our eyes focused where they belong, focused on Jesus. I think we see so often during this time of year um, a focus on commercialism and self-centeredness, materialism, and we can even turn the fun fellowship with family and friends into something that we place more value on than we do the celebration of Christ, celebration of the coming of Christ. In, in misunderstanding this time of year, misunderstanding what this is all about, so to speak, we get Jesus wrong sometimes. Rather than celebrating God taking on flesh, we celebrate ourselves or our family or things. I'm sure everybody remembers a time when you've seen the Christmas season, the Advent season, or denigrated. I remember when I, in, the, in the early and mid-80s, somewhere around in there, all these fights in department stores over a Cabbage Patch doll. You remember those? Brawls, full-on brawls with middle-aged people punching each other to get their hands on a doll. And I'm sure you all have seen your share of Black Friday insanity, right? Um, I went to one and one only Black Friday sale in my life. Amy and I had not been married very long, and we had no television. And so... Walmart had a television at an unbeatable price for this little window of the Black Friday special. So I did the thing where you get up at 2.30 in the morning and go sit in the parking lot, and then they let you in the store, but not the shop yet. You're just able to go stand where you expect your, your, your goods to be. And so also, at that same time, there was this little game system, and it had started to go out of style, but people still use it. It was called a Game Boy. You probably remember that. Game Boy, handheld game system, and Walmart was selling them at this Black Friday sale for $10 a piece. $10 Game Boys. Unbeatable price, right? $10 a piece, and that, that affected me because that's where I, I was also in electronics, waiting for my television. And so... So as, as the time got near, the, the employees, they began coming out, right? And they, they walk them out, and they're on these huge pallets. Some of them are standing seven and eight feet high, and they've got all these goods. And the, the Game Boy crazies, they just start banging into each other and pleading, and they've got their arms up in the air, and they start begging the employees to just, just throw me one. And so they do. They start throwing these Game Boys to the mob. If you've ever seen a movie of, like, ancient Rome... When Caesar shows up and they throw the bread to the peasants, it, it was exactly, exactly the same thing. Give me my daily bread. Give me that Game Boy. And there, were people, there were people crying. And there were people angry. And there was pushing and shoving. The 
Traditional celebration of Christ's incarnation is often cheapened into a worship of the season, not a worship of the reason. We can miss Jesus when we become consumed with ourselves. So in, back to Advent, in celebrating Advent, we kind of rest our eyes on the only thing that matters, Jesus Christ and his glory. And the word Advent means coming or arrival. It's a Latin word celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And also, this is often overlooked. John mentioned it, I believe, last year on the first Sunday of Advent. We, we look forward to Christ's return as well. We long for that. And, and by the way, that's not far off in God's timing. We exist in the last days, and the last days are characterized with difficulty and pain and hardship and struggle. We as human beings, because of this, we're filled with this sense of longing. And our, as believers, our longings should be directed to Christ. But every human being, whether you're a believer or not, is filled with this sense of longing, this sense that this isn't everything, right? This is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not the way things are supposed to work. C.S. Lewis says, everybody uses this every year, so I'm going to use it. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We long for a world without rejection. We long for a world where we are in right relation with our creator. We long to live where man lives in peace with one another. Side note, pray for the nation of Israel. There's a lot of evil in our world right now. We long to live where there is no sickness, no death, no loneliness. And we long for that because God created us for it. We are created with a longing to be with Christ, to be home. And if you belong to Jesus, you are being prepared for that eternal home. So in celebrating Advent, we celebrate a great truth. That God was faithful in fulfilling his prophecy. God is faithful in keeping his word. God was faithful in sending the Messiah. We can be assured that God will be faithful in Christ's return. So our passage today helps us begin to unpack what God has and what God will accomplish in Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is considered to be one of the more Christological, the more Christ-centered passages in Scripture. You'll, and you'll hear that even in the English language, there is a, there's a degree of rhythm to this passage. In the original language, it's thought by some scholars this may have been a poem or may have even been a hymn that was sung. Paul had sent Epaphras to spread the gospel in the Lycus Valley, and Epaphras would later set up the church at Colossae. And this would have been during Paul's first imprisonment, his, his house arrest. And we see something spring up known as the Colossian heresy. Paul had never met these people, but he received word of false teachers. And it's a familiar 
repeated theme when dealing with false teachers. Jesus is prominent in the teaching, but Jesus is not preeminent in theology. The people there had missed on Jesus. Error about Christ opens the door to heresy. Some were beginning to believe that Jesus Christ was not enough, that sacred knowledge was also required. So Paul proclaims, let's read our passage here. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Powerful. And Paul does something here we would be very wise to emulate. So he's, he's pleading with the people to get Jesus right. A, a Jesus that differs from the Jesus of this book is a false Jesus, a non-saving Jesus. But Paul does not attack directly the error. He will, but the first thing he does is to proclaim truth. That stands in complete contrast to the social media culture of today, right? If someone is our opponent, if they are our opposition, they must be silenced, canceled, extinguished, defeated. But Paul is just proclaiming the truth about Christ. Often you hear people say in church life, I don't really want to know about theology I just want to learn about Jesus. The problem with that statement is that theology is the truth about Jesus. It's the truth about salvation. Sproul said, everyone is a theologian. Your belief in Jesus is the only determining factor in heaven or hell. And you must know, love, believe, and protect the truth we can run into real problems just as the people here were when we say things like, I just know what Jesus is to me. I feel in my heart that Jesus is like this, which usually means he has the same politics and special interests you do. But your feelings lie to you. Scripture never does. The theology in this book will never lie. And it's great to enjoy God, enjoy God's creation. You can do that on a hike. You can do that out in nature. You can do that in a a deer stand, a family event, meditating, time with loved ones. But to grow in grace and knowledge happens through the reading of the word of God. And if Christ is someone we love, why would we cease to learn and grow in him by rejecting the reading and the study of his word. And you see when this occurs that theology becomes shallow, 
When we neglect the word of God, moralism replaces gospel. And Paul is protecting sound doctrine. And we protect sound doctrine because heresy occurs when sound doctrine is not protected. When the word of God is abandoned and when the word of God is replaced with human passion and human philosophy. In this case, the philosophy that had led to heresy was derived from a, a Hellenistic tradition. Um, they spoke of Jesus regularly, but they had it wrong. Jesus was not supreme in this heresy. He was inferior to God. Also, angels were worshipped. There was also the practice of asceticism, uh, deprivation, even abuse of one's, quote, evil body. And the uh, purveyors of the Colossian heresy claimed to have special knowledge that usurped the authority of Scripture. These particular false teachers were teaching of a sacred and secret knowledge that was required in addition to God's word. This sacred knowledge would come to be known as Gnosticism. And in, the later, in, in later centuries, the Gnostics would even start writing their own scripture. And that's what Paul is facing, a people that have gotten Jesus wrong, and that's simply not something we can afford to be wrong about. The people of Colossae believed that physical matter was evil, and that took them down a very unfortunate path because the universe is made up of matter. So if matter is evil and God is not evil, God couldn't have created everything, so God must have sent out all of these emanations, and these emanations did all the creating. That's a long way to go, just to, just to hold on to this, but that, that's, that's where it got to. Paul looks at this and says they are denying both the humanity. They denied that they, they attached Jesus as an emanation, so he was neither human nor divine. So they, they removed his humanity and his deity. And just because one uses the name Jesus, uh, Paul is saying, this is not a live and let live situation where you have your truth and I have my truth. A false Jesus is a wicked heresy. And that's what Paul is refuting. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes his case in, I think, three different proclamations in this passage. And those will serve as our three points that we're going to hit briefly. Our first point this morning Jesus is supreme over all creation. Jesus is supreme over all creation. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the Greek word for image here is akon, which is exactly where we get our word icon from. Paul is saying Jesus is not a reflection of God's glory. Rather, he is God and he radiates his own essential glory. Paul says that he is the perfect, the exact likeness of God. John 14, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father. Jesus is fully God in every way. That's what he's proclaiming. 
You are actually looking at the one the Father has sent to reveal God to you. I look a lot like my father. Um, Every time I go home back to Georgia, I, I hear that. Oh, you look just like your dad at your age. And I do. I look a lot like him. But I would be, I would be wrong to say, if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. Uh, we're, we're different. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is the perfect image of God. God is spirit. No one has seen God. No matter what anyone with a movie deal or a book deal tells you, no one has seen God. First John, Jesus is the visible image of invisible God. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus is so precious to us. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see God in Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. A little longer on this short verse because there's just so much there. We see that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And certainly that can be, out of context, that can be confusing. So let's look at what to be the firstborn of creation means. Christian author Chris Rosebro um, says on his podcast all the time, the three sound rules, of, the three rules of sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. When we say firstborn, that can be a chronological statement. It can be the order of your children. But it's important to note that in both Jewish and Greek culture, the firstborn is a position of rank or a preeminence of position. We see this in Hebrews 1, um, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. We see this again in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in both Jewish and Greek culture, the firstborn son was the son that had received the right of inheritance, whether or not he was born chronologically first. We see the same use of this term with the nation of Israel. So of course, Israel... It's not the first nation, but in Exodus 4, God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. We see similar in Jeremiah 31, Psalm 89, Revelation 1. Psalm 89, speaking of David, God says, And I will make him the firstborn, meaning the highest of kings of the earth. So it's obvious we're talking about rank, And we're talking about supremacy. Christ has the right of inheritance over all creation because Jesus Christ is God. Christ reigns over all. So Paul is very intentionally affirming the deity and the supremacy of Jesus. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. God gave humanity a perfect creation. He gave us right relation with himself. No death, no decay, no disease, no sickness, 
And God looked at what he had made and he said, it is very good. All was done to the glory of God. And the sin-induced loss of that perfect creation provides in part the longing that we feel today. God's faithfulness to keep his promises is the source of our hope. So Paul is trying to refute this heretical view that Christ was created. He says Christ isn't created because Christ created everything. You can't create everything if you yourself were created. The false teaching was claiming otherwise, but under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that Christ is supreme over creation because he is the creator. Richard Bauckham writes, what the passage does is to include Jesus Christ in God's unique relationship to the whole created reality and thereby to include Jesus in the unique identity of God as Jewish monotheism understood it. I just got back from Alaska, well, this past summer. If you've ever looked at the landscape in Alaska, if you've ever watched the sunset in the desert, if you've ever hiked through the mountains or seen the aurora borealis or laid on your back and watched a meteor shower, it's very hard to deny a sovereign creator and sustainer of everything. It's hard to look at the beauty of creation and say, what a glorious accident that is. That billions of years ago, nothing smashed into nothing and made everything. But Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all. We know that as believers. We read that Jesus created thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, and we read these words. I think what we're dealing here with is just different ranks or groupings of angelic beings. I know some people get bogged down here. Some of you are friends of mine that get bogged down here. Some of you are in this room right now and you get really bogged down here. But I would caution, about, I would caution against spending a lot of time um, thinking about what exactly this refers to. All Paul wants us to know is that Christ created all and Christ rules over all. But false teachers, had, they had worked their heresies and they had wormed their own ambitions into the teaching of the church, attempting to homogenize worship of angels with the Christian faith. Paul says that's foolish, that's sinful. To rank Jesus alongside any created thing is grave error. Things, beings were created by Christ and for Christ. We see this type of thing today in false religions, whether it's ranking the saints or the veneration of Mary or the Arianism of the Jehovah's Witness Church, an attempt to elevate anything to Christ's level or an attempt to lower Christ to anything else's level is error. But we read all things were created by him and for him. Sometimes we like to think God made everything for us. Sometimes we like to think God created a, plat, a, a path of salvation just to make us happy. Now, I want to be very careful. We are, we are happy about that. We're joyful about that. But God's, God's primary desire is his own glory. 
God made everything that we have to glorify himself. God created salvation to glorify himself. And as believers, God has put within us joy and contentment when God is glorified. As Sproul said, nothing gives the believer more, more joy than to see God glorified. God does love you, and God does want good for you, but God wants and demands his glory. All things were created by him and for him. He is not created, he is creator. So to verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John 8, this is one of my favorite passages. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is declaring, to, declaring himself eternal God. The God that revealed himself to the Jews, the one who is, the one who will be, he is the same unchanging God through the ages. Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We read on and see that Jesus is also the sustainer. Not only does Jesus create everything, but he holds it together. I spend a lot of time thinking about that, thinking of how grains of sand in distant universes are held together. This, everything is held together by Jesus Christ. Dave Mathis, who is the um, executive editor at Desiring God, he wrote, not only is his involvement in creation exhaustive, but also in every moment of every day, he doesn't make the watch and walk away. He holds the world, all history, and our lives in his hands and actively keeps them ticking by the millisecond. Jesus holds all of creation together. Our second point, Jesus is supreme over the church. Verse 18, we read that he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There were certainly resurrections in Scripture. We read of them. Lazarus was resurrected, and Jesus resurrected a little girl. Resurrections, but all of those people still died. They eventually succumbed to the penalty for the sin of humanity, that thing that ended man's perfect enjoyment of creation. But Christ was resurrected never to die again, glorified. We read that Christ is the head of the church. That is something we say a lot. And it's something that we struggle with from time to time. The church's role is to glorify God, to proclaim the word of God and teaching at the gathering. The men and the women of the church are to use their spiritual gifts to bless the body, to bring glory to God 
Deacons are to serve the needs of the church as a whole. Elders are to lead and to protect. Christ is the head of the church. Whether your church has five families or whether your church has 5,000 families. If Christ is not the head, you're no longer a church. Despite what your sign and your website or whatever that says. Our elders here at Capshaw are John Sloan, who's our senior pastor, Adam Rice, Craig Capps, Paul Harvey, Jerry Flanagan, Todd DeWitt, and, and myself. And none of those men are the head of this church. And we're blessed that none of those men desire to be the head of this church. Jesus Christ is the head of his church forever. Our final point this morning. Christ's sufficiency and supremacy is declared in his authority over the consummation of all things. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As I studied, this verse came alive to me. I, I, I learned a few things I, I did not know. Um, I just found this very intriguing when Paul says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that phrase, all the fullness, would have probably been a term used by those of the Colossian heresy. He's, he's speaking their language, in other words. See, they believe that divine powers were spread among all these created beings, these emanations we talked about. So Paul is speaking to them in their own language. He says that the power and authority is not spread out. It's completely dwelling in Jesus Christ. Paul is engaging these Greek philosophers by speaking in their language, using their terminology. The philosophers of the day would have said that everything, for anything that happens, there must be a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. And as you can see from the text, that's where Paul is meeting them in his argument. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the primary cause because he's the creator of all things. He is the instrumental cause because he is the one that produced all things and holds them together. And he is the final cause because everything was created and exists for his glory. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word reconcile means to change or to exchange. In reconciling the believer, Christ changes the sinner's relation to God. We've studied this exact thing for months in the book of Romans, right? Man is reconciled when God restores right relationship, and God does that through the blood of Jesus on the cross, his atoning work on the cross. That's the Jesus of Scripture. This text does not mean that all will believe and celebrate Jesus as Lord, but it does mean that all will submit to the authority of Jesus. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Romans 5 is one of my Favorite passages. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory 
of God. God and those he saves are no longer at enmity with one another. As we we look at this season of Advent, we look at Christ's coming and Christ's return and wonder, where is this headed? What happens at the end? For both the unsaved and the believer, our lives are often filled with longings for peace, happiness, companionship, acceptance. And we've all felt those longings. But for the believer, our longing must be directed toward Jesus. I think we all, I know I made this mistake with my children in the way I raised them, telling them of how awesome heaven was. You talk about how great heaven is, all the things you'll get to do and all the things you'll get to see. Sometimes we forget, oh, Jesus is there. Um, You think, oh, I can't wait to see grandma or I I can't wait. That just pales in comparison to eternity with Jesus Christ. And if you're a human being, and that's, that's everyone here, you're going to spend eternity in God's grace or wrath. God's grace is offered to all who believe. Belief that leads you to call out to God for saving faith. Paul, in this passage, is imploring us not to miss Jesus. You cheat yourself when you miss Jesus. Jonathan Edwards once said that, about 250 years ago, that Jesus is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. So as we enter a time of year, a holiday season, Christmas season, as we celebrate Advent, Christmas is celebrated by believers and non-believers alike, right? But Christians should look different to the rest of the world. And we do this by getting Jesus right, by longing for the one true God, the creator, the sustainer of all. This subject came up at Thanksgiving this year. When I end up back home or at my parents' house, we end up in their field, standing around a bonfire, fixing all of the world's problems till late in the night. That's, that's just what you do there. And it was one of, the, one of my friends had just come to the revelation that not all that say they believe in Jesus are Christians. And he said, cults claim belief in Jesus. We saw in our passage that Gnostics claim belief in Jesus. The KKK claims belief in Jesus. Sometimes we attempt to fit Jesus into our box. You hear things said like, oh, I could never believe in a Jesus that could whatever. It's important that we do not substitute our Jesus for the Jesus, our truth for the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's described and celebrated rightly right here in the pages of Scripture. And if you're here today and you do not know him, or you would like to know more, please come find one of us after the service today. 
Our pastors and elders will be here around the front. There will be a couple of other church members down here too. And they would love to speak with you. But I want to tell you this. If you're at Capshaw, and, and you are, you're surrounded by unmet friends that would love to share the gospel with you. Don't be afraid to grab someone and say, tell me about Jesus. So as our, our musicians come up to the stage, Jesus Christ is God. He is creator, the only means of salvation. There's nothing in addition to Jesus. There is no work of man. There is no special ceremony. Nothing but the blood of Jesus shed when he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. Nothing but that blood can save. If you have any questions, if you have any doubts, I pray that you find someone to talk to this morning. Let's pray together.